Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, yesterday there was a session held in an inquiry of the Red Hill Valley Parkway. What came of it? Well, we'll talk with one of the lawyers that was involved in that. Should masks be mandatory? Hamilton's mayor says there will be a bylaw presented Friday for city council to decide whether or not we want to follow that sort of path here in this city. Burlington's doing the same sort of thing, too. And it's been three weeks, but Andrew Goldberg returns to the show to discuss more employment issues during the pandemic. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, we talked about the uh, Red Hill Inquiry that's supposed to be going on. Uh, it seems as if it's been forever now, but uh, the, the, the frustration, I think, is because they had another virtual session about this just a couple of days ago, is that they don't seem to be where we want them to be at this stage. I mean, let's face it, the whole idea of this inquiry was to try to get some answers about what happened. Was the road constructed poorly? Were the materials used, the bright materials? Uh, is there any culpability here because of the number of, uh, of, of collisions and the number of deaths that have occurred? A lot of questions. And no answers so far on uh, what's gone on on this. Joining us to talk about this and give us some uh, text context as to what's going on is uh, Robert Center. Robert is uh, uh, the Commission Council, of course, and uh, uh, partnered with uh, Polar Lowland, Rosenberg, and Rothstein LLP. Uh, Robert, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could hop on with us again today. Good morning, Bill. It's nice to talk to you again. Well, let's let's talk about uh, about where you are in this inquiry right now. Uh, I, I'm sure, Rob, that there are a number of people back in the day that said, "Okay, by by summertime of 2020, I'm sure we're going to at least have some answers, just some testimony on this." Uh, are people dragging their heels, or is is it COVID-19? Why are we still seemingly still at the starting line here? Right. Um, I think that's a very understandable feeling. Uh, the the inquiry process is always uh, slower and more complicated than uh, citizens want. In this case, I think there are a couple of reasons why uh, the parties have not been able to uh, produce the documents to us yet. And they include uh, the fact that some of these um, questions around you know, the construction and the paving go back a number of years, and it's always more difficult to collect documents that are a little more historical in nature than uh, documents that just happened. And second, there's no doubt that the uh, pandemic has uh, uh, slowed everything down in all sorts of workplaces. And uh, the ability to collect, review and produce the documents to the inquiry, I think, has been affected uh, by the pandemic. But in a situation like that, and, and I, I get that, and I understand that, uh, mm-hmm. to, to use an old phrase, the wheels of justice do turn slowly. We understand that. Right. But, but this, is, this is 2020. It's not like these guys have to go down to the basement and start digging through boxes to find these things. Uh, I'm assuming they're all electronically available, and with a push of a button, you can make them available, can't you? So um, we can't... It, it, the question is for the participants to make the documents available to us. And I think mm-hmm. in our discussion with some of the participants, uh, indeed, a lot of the documents are hard copies that need to be converted into some kind of more usable format. Okay. Um, and, and so that, that has slowed down. I, I can assure you that um, to date, the, the inquiry has received about 74,000 documents from participants and other people uh, who do hold relevant documents. And we have been uh, busy reviewing those documents and attempting to uh, understand what they uh, tell us about the questions set out in the terms of reference. The Commission has retained uh, experts to help us um, understand some of the test data that's been provided, to help us understand some of the uh, issues around the design and the building of the roadway, uh, as well as some of the interaction uh, between uh, staff at uh, City Council or, sorry, City Hall. Uh, and some of the consultants that were involved. So the work has continued uh, behind the scenes, um, uh, but we are still, uh, we do require uh, the document production phase to be completed by the participants so that we can then start uh, interviewing people that we think are going are to have a significant amount of relevant and very helpful information uh, to help the inquiry answer the, the 24 questions posed by uh, City Council. Rob, where do you start in something like this? Do you, do you know what you're asking for, what, what you'd like to get from, from all of these individuals, or, or is it just like, give us everything and we'll sift through it ourselves? It's a great question, um, and there's a real um, synergy between the participants and the inquiry because it doesn't help for us to turn to, to, be, to receive uh, 
for example, I think the city said yesterday, three million documents, if not all of them are going to be relevant, because then that just that just shifts the time to us to have to mm-hmm. sift through large amounts of irrelevant data. Um, so we had we the questions that were given to us by uh, city council, the, the 24 questions in the terms of reference, and we've worked with the participants to try and come up with categories of documents and descriptions of documents that we think might help us answer those questions to try and provide a little more context and detail to the participants so that they can um, uh, search their own records in a more fruitful way and hopefully produce to us uh, documents that are going to be helpful, not just relevant uh, to the the work of the inquiry. So that's been a process that we've undertaken uh, with the participants at the inquiry and also um, entities that may hold relevant information uh, even if they're not a participant in the inquiry. We've been working closely with a number of those entities uh, to collect relevant documents uh, that we think are going to be helpful. Yeah, that's that's an interesting uh, aspect of this whole thing. I mean, because we think of, okay, uh, who built the thing? Well, I know, I know Dufferin's involved in this. Then, okay, well, who else is involved in this? Uh, but there could be some stuff that we, as the, as the public, may not actually realize that you think would be germane to this discussion, too. That's right. There are going to be a lot of... Um, of technical issues, um, uh, you know, the composition of the asphalt that was used, uh, uh-huh. design features of the road, a whole bunch of, of technical information that we have to we have to collect and then think really hard about uh, to to decide how to present evidence at the public hearings in a way that's going to be helpful to the commissioner uh, to answer those questions um, and and hopefully provide uh, some really a useful information to city council and to the citizens of Hamilton about what happened and why. So obviously you're having discussions, uh, obviously from your, you're looking at through the legal prism, but I mean, you're, I'm sure talking with engineers and others, uh, design people that know something about how roads should be built and what exactly happened here and probably getting their analysis as these documents come forward too. That's right. The, the commission council will be, uh, has retained and will be retaining uh, experts to help us analyze the data, uh, the construction methods, the uh, information that was used, the collision reports, all of those uh, sorts of, of, of data points that um, uh, where we look to experts in the field to give us their best judgment on um, how to understand uh, the data uh, in a way that uh, you know that that me that I as a lawyer. Uh, don't have any particular expertise um, in in analyzing uh, asphalt composition. I'm going to be looking to help, to looking to, for help uh, from experts in those fields. Has the, has the COVID situation hurt or hindered the, this? And obviously, it's delayed it because of the timing and and getting some of this stuff. But I mean, the actual presentation, Rob, is going forward on this with an inquiry. Uh, I think in our mind's eye, when we heard about this initially, when council decided to go in this direction, uh, you know, we thought of a, of a you know a, a boardroom, people coming forward, testifying, mm-hmm. evidence being presented, etc. Uh, it's a different ballgame now because of COVID. Everything's being done virtually. It's all by Zoom, etc. Does that does that help or hinder you? Um, I think it. I think it slows everything down. Doing things virtually, um, and and the effect of the pandemic is um, is myriad. And I, you know, I think all of your listeners know at their own places of work and with their own experiences the challenges that um, employees have had dealing with uh, the consequences of the pandemic, and whether that is the absence of childcare or the absence of uh, your kids in school. Um, that has you know, those effects uh, also affect the work of the inquiry and um, the participants. And we are very, very concerned to make sure that whatever um, we do around the public hearings phase of the inquiry um, first provides meaningful access uh, to the citizens of Hamilton to allow them to uh, observe and see what's happening because we think it is, it is crucially important that a public inquiry not lose sight of the public part of the mandate. Um, but at the same time, we, we will be very uh, mindful of what uh, the public health guidance is at that time, that uh, the way we used to do things, which would be to get 25 people together in a room and sit in a room with witnesses and members of the public in the back of the room and, and sit there for you know eight hours a day, may not be uh, in early 2021, uh, may not be advisable. 
So we're working with uh, all of the council for the participants, council for the city, uh, to think through how uh, we might be able to uh, run a hearing uh, in a way that is safe and still provides meaningful public access. And what we chose yesterday was to do it uh, on Zoom so that the participants, the council, were all in a Zoom meeting and could see and hear each other. And then that Zoom hearing was live streamed so that uh, members of the public, even though they weren't participants in the Zoom hearing, could observe everything that went on. And I think that that was, uh, for a first time, a pretty successful uh, first go at it. And all of the council are uh, gathering experience uh, each day about how to conduct hearings effectively online. And, um, you know, we're going to use, we're going to see the pandemic as an opportunity uh, as in addition to a challenge. And we're going to try and uh, make sure that we maximize uh, public involvement as, as best we can, but in a way that's, um, that's safe and mindful of the very real dangers the pandemic poses. Rob, are all the uh, relevant parties cooperating? Are they, are, are they in, in the game here? Or are some people dragging their heels? How do, how do you see it? No, we've, we have been uh, pleased with the uh, cooperation we've received to date. I think you, you heard the commissioner express uh, disappointment yesterday yeah. that the document mm-hmm. production process has not been completed. Uh, but uh, I, think, uh, I think that all of the participants are working hard. And what we really want to do now is, is just focus on getting the last, um, completing the document production process and moving forward uh, in an efficient uh, and effective way. One of the major concerns, and I think you and I talked about this months ago, uh, is you, you were trying to put this whole thing together, is that public element to it. People, a, a number of people, some of them uh, had families, loved ones uh, that have been impacted by some of the stuff that's gone on in the Red Hill since the road opened, are saying, well, look, at, we need our time before this commission too. And uh, there's some frustration. I'm still hearing and getting emails from some people that are saying, well, when are we going to be able to, to have our say? When are we going to be able to make our presentation? Uh, how, how does that come about? What are you planning to do to try to, uh, to incorporate that element of it into the investigation and into the inquiry? Definitely. And that, that is really important, and I'm glad, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that question. Um, in the decision on standing and funding, the commissioner indicated that he intended to provide a forum uh, for individuals who had been personally affected by accidents on the parkway to allow them to be consulted and to participate. And um, we're going to be putting that in place in the summer and into the fall. It was, we originally hoped to have the, the process up and running right now, and then that mm-hmm. was something that we had to think through because of the pandemic, because what we had originally intended were in-person meetings with, uh, with a lot of individuals who wanted to, to talk to us. And, and I don't think that that is... Um, uh, a good way to proceed right now, but what we are hoping to do uh, is now through uh, a mix of telephone conversations and Zoom meetings and other kinds of uh, uh, audiovisually mediated um, discussions, give an opportunity for uh, interested persons to advise the inquiry that they would like to contribute to the work of the inquiry through this forum, um, and then through a socially distant uh, mechanism. Uh, we'd like to meet with those interested persons by telephone and video conference. We'd like to collect documents from them if they have anything that they could share. Uh, and we're interested in, in hearing from them. Uh, first, to collect any information that, that may help us with the work of the inquiry, but also, and just as importantly, for them to express how the, um, their experiences on the parkway have affected them and to hear uh, you know, the, the challenges uh, that they have faced and some of the losses that they've suffered um, through accidents on the parkway. And that's something that we take really seriously. And we're hoping that um, through, even though we will be doing it through tech, uh, technologically mediated interactions, we hope um, that that will be uh, meaningful for uh, the the citizens, because we know it's going to be very, very helpful for us, and it's something that we uh, we take really seriously. Rob, maybe just remind our listeners about what the end game is here. Uh, when all is said and done, when all the 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 testimony has been given, when all the documents have been read uh, and assessed in situations like that, uh, is is the inquiry uh, moving towards uh, 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 just? Uh, creating a body of information here? Are they going to make uh, suggestions? Are they going to make recommendations? Uh, what what kind of a document is, is actually going to be out of this, and what would you like to see happen as a result of it? 
Sure. So the, the terms of reference um, require the inquiry to determine facts relating to the 24 questions that were posed by City Council. Um, so really answering questions uh, that are factual in nature, who, what, where, when, why kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not our job to make determinations of uh, criminal liability or civil liability. That's, that's not the purpose of a public inquiry, but we are uh, there to try and determine what happened Uh, and to answer the 24 questions posed by council. The second part of the mandate is to make recommendations that come out of those 24 questions uh, that are in the public's interest, and in particular the interest of the good government of the city of Hamilton, and in the interest of road safety. So we will be making recommendations where we think it's appropriate uh, in those areas. The recommendations that we make are really going to follow the factual findings, because we don't want to make recommendations that are in the air or have no connection to what actually uh, happened uh, with, uh, with, the, uh, with the parkway. So the first step is to determine what happened and then thinking about that, how, what recommendations would the commissioner make um, that he thinks uh, will be in the public interest, promote the interest of good government and uh, make roads uh, safer for everyone. Are those recommendations uh, going to be binding or is it just going to be out there and it's up to the council to, to do or not do what they want to do? It's exact. It, it, it's, they are not binding. The commissioner okay. does not have the ability, although he's a judge, when he's sitting as a commissioner, um, the, the, the very nature of a commission of inquiry is to make recommendations as opposed to, uh, to bind any party to a particular course of action. Well, I know what your summer reading is going to be all about this year. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not going anywhere. You've got a lot of stuff to go through in the next little while. Uh, I want to stay in touch with you, though. This is very important. And as you've heard, obviously, over the last couple of days, Rob, uh, many, many people in this community are very concerned and very interested in how this is going to turn out and uh, looking forward to participating in that. So uh, you and I will touch base again on this uh, very shortly, I'm sure. Thanks so much for this today, and uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Anytime, Bill. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, take care. Rob Rob Santa, of course, uh, who is the legal counsel for the inquiry into the Red Hill Valley Parkway. And uh, there's a lot of work yet to do on this. And as Rob mentioned and reminded us, it's probably going to be into next year uh, before they actually start uh, getting into some of the nuts and bolts of this and having you and anyone else who might be interested in uh, participating in this to actually have their say in this. But we'll talk lots more about that in the uh, weeks and months ahead. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. To mask or not to mask, when commentary at 810 this morning had to do with uh, mandatory face masks, as uh, many jurisdictions are doing these days, uh, which runs counter to the way some people are thinking. I, I really get the impression, and I'm sure you've seen similar situations if you've been out and about at a grocery store or wherever you've been over the last little while. Uh, very, very few people seem to be wearing masks and protective equipment. Uh, maybe less than 50%. I don't know. I guess it depends on the circumstance. And I find that frustrating because we've been told time and time again by medical experts that uh, this is not the second wave of COVID that we're experiencing. It's still the first wave and it's starting to spike again. This is not going away anytime soon. And medical experts like, uh, well, Dr. Stephen Taylor uh, suggest that this is what has to happen. Here's what Dr. Taylor had to say. Most people um, will look at the situation and balance things up and say, well, you know, it's a better safe than sorry approach. I'm giving up some of my freedoms, but what I'm buying in, in place of that is uh, a sense of safety. So I wear a mask so I don't have to go on a ventilator, for example. So most people re- reason along those lines, but some people, for various kinds of reasons that are poorly understood, have this intense, strong um, uh, sense that they need to protect their freedoms and rights. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that uh, because the city of Hamilton is uh, toying with the idea. I think they're probably going to move forward on this uh, when they meet again and pass a bylaw that's going to make uh, mask wearing mandatory in, indoors anyway uh, for the next little while. The city of Burlington is also entertaining a similar idea. Uh, Toronto has done this. Many other jurisdictions have done this. So what are the pros and cons? And let's talk about this and how it's going to happen, if it's going to happen here in Hamilton. Uh, Paul Johnson is the Director of Emergency Centers for the City of Hamilton, of course, and has been front and center in the battle against COVID here in this community. He joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Paul, thanks for joining us. Great to have you on the show again. Yeah, great to be here, Bill. Thank you. 
let's let's talk a little bit about this. And, and you and I mentioned this, I guess, long before I, I took some time off there a few weeks ago, uh, about the attitude that people seem to have. And when the numbers started going down, and, and we need to congratulate ourselves, of course, here in the Hamilton area for doing what needed to be done vis-a-vis social distancing and a number of other things uh, to try to flatten that curve. And it's great to see that it's starting to have an impact. But I got the sense uh, that, and I think a lot of people did, that we got kind of lackadaisical here and said, all right, that's over with now. We've beaten COVID. Let's move on with our lives. We haven't beaten it. It's still here, isn't it? Oh, very much so. There is, uh, there's, there's no cure. There's no vaccine. Um, and, and while the treatment protocols uh, continue to evolve and, and uh, doctors in, in hospitals understand more now about how to treat COVID, the reality is that we, we learn every day about this virus. So, it hasn't disappeared, and and the work we we really did, you know, the, the serious work of flattening that curve was about closing facilities, keeping people at home and close to home, and very slowly opening up opportunities for people to be more engaged and connected. That physical separation is really what helped us. Hamiltonians did extremely well in terms of that piece, and um, but now that uh, things are shifting to more of that reopening mindset. Uh, we need to think about all the measures that are that we need to take uh, in order to protect ourselves from a virus that still exists in large numbers and for a population that has no immunity. This, the reality here, too, and we had a great discussion yesterday with our friend uh, Dr. Richard Rohde from the Texas State University, who's an epidemiologist, and uh, he's talking about what's going on, and we talked about what's happening in Texas. And I think we can learn from that, can't we, Paul? The, the jurisdictions... Uh, like Texas, Florida, and other places like that, that decided to reopen and just kind of throw the doors open and say, "Okay, guys, let's let's just do this." They've noticed a, a, a definite spike in in new cases, uh, tragically, uh, in situations like that because people did throw caution to the wind. So as we start our process, and and the city, I think, and and you and I have had this discussion, have been very very helpful in trying to get local businesses back on track and trying to give them some direction on how to do things properly within the limitations that you've given them. But we have to also uh, not let our guard down here. And, and masking, I think, is one of the key elements that we have to do. If, if we're going to allow people to go into restaurants and into other establishments, uh, they've got to wear protection. That's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Uh, there has to be a series of protections, and, and there's emerging evidence that masks play a role in that. Still, some of the stronger elements are uh, that physical separation, that hand hygiene, uh, and really limiting high-risk uh, opportunities. And you know, if, if we're taking lessons from other parts of, of the world, which we have been throughout this pandemic, because other parts of the world have actually been ahead of us in terms of the role of this virus in, in, in its timing. Uh, you know, when you have uh, situations where bars are opening and indoor spaces are allowing large numbers of people to congregate, that's typically when you're seeing some of this stuff occur. And family transmission, more parties and people being involved in family activities or friend activities. So as we get closer to that, Bill, uh, and, and, you know, within the next few weeks, for sure, I, I think this province is heading into stage three, which will have more indoor activities open to the public. Uh, we need to make sure that all of those protections are in place. And, and I think masking what we're hearing from Dr. Richardson and, and other health professionals is that it plays a role and there's emerging evidence that it should be part of the suite of things that we're doing to protect ourselves, particularly as we start to open these indoor spaces. The outdoor is a much lower risk activity and there are much easier ways to physically distance and that should be some of the first things we do. But when you get into those indoor environments or environments where it's impossible to maintain that two meters of separation, transit is another great example, which is why we took some of those steps early. Uh, we're going to need a series of things and that's where masking comes in. And I, I don't want to get too deeply into the weeds here about, about rights, et cetera, like that, because the, the common argument I'm hearing from a lot of people that just don't want to do this is that, well, I have my rights. Uh, and I want to remind people, as we've had this discussion on the show before, uh, that may be a, 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 an argument, whether it's worthy or not, uh, that many people in the, in the states can use uh, because of the way that their constitution is demanded. But here... Uh, the Canadian side of things, the greater good supersedes individual rights. In other words, you say, I feel like driving 75 miles over the speed limit without a seatbelt on because I have the right to do that. Uh, you can't do that in Canada because you're, you're potentially harming other people. And, and I guess the argument we have to make here, Paul, is that if you don't wear a mask, if you don't take these precautions, you have run the risk of, you could be asymptomatic, you run the risk of harming other people by, by simply saying, I don't care about COVID-19. Uh, if you, if you don't, 
we, we, this government and the local government, the federal government, the provincial government are well within their rights to say, well, these are the rules you have to play by or you simply can't go out. Uh, you know, I think through this whole pandemic, what we've been trying to balance is what, what evidence do we have and how, what can we use to stop the spread of COVID and, and protect our communities from an overwhelming of the healthcare system and a, a grinding to the halt of the economy because people can't work because they're sick. How do we balance balance you know that with um, we do want people to not feel that uh, that all of their uh, you know rights if you want to use those words but certainly their ability to to be involved in community is taken away and so that's a balance we have to strike for many businesses uh, I mean all of a sudden governments were saying you can't run your business that's a pretty hard message and they didn't get a choice and it's been a very solid one necessary in short bursts. And I think what we're seeing now with these discussions around mandatory masking is that we want to look at these things and continue to evaluate all the things that make sense. And in most jurisdictions, and it will be the recommendation uh, in, in our report coming forward Friday, is that these are temporary measures. They'll be reviewed uh, regularly and often to see whether it's the best approach. But, you know, for something that we don't know about, for something that we're learning about every day, uh, I, I I sometimes say to folks, if it seems fairly reasonable, and I think using a non-medical mask is a fairly reasonable uh, request, if we think it can help the situation, why would we not try and do that? And I think the good news is that there's lots of people that are that are agreeing and lots of people who see that this is uh, one element of it. But I, I don't want to lose the fact that this is not a replacement for all the things that we've said from day one, physical separation, washing your hands, not going out if you're sick wearing a mask or not, don't be in public if you're sick. Uh, those types of things remain. This is an added layer of what we're trying to do and really comes about because more people are going to be out and more people are going to be indoors. And that's the concern because we do know that those are high-risk areas for transmission. What about enforcement in a situation like this? I, I, I don't foresee that if council moves forward on this on Friday, Paul, that, uh, that people at bylaw offices are going to be walking around and say, whoa, 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 you, you, you know, here's a $20 ticket. Or, uh, this is going to be an education process, uh, an information process. Uh, but I, I can't really see bylaw getting you know, hands-on about this and the, the zero tolerance thing that we do with some other things. How, how are you going to handle that? So we're going to handle it very much the way we've handled the bylaws uh, throughout this pandemic, which is lots of education. Uh, you know, bylaw has a lot of things they're looking at right now, but when it comes to the COVID situations, it's always about education first. And it was that way with our physical distancing bylaw. It's that way even with the provincial orders. It's, you know, if people were really just, oh, I didn't realize it meant that, and, and yeah, I'll comply right away. Our goal was not to hand out large fines, whether it was under the provincial umbrella or our city umbrella. It'll be the same here. But what having a bylaw does is it allows you to deal with egregious examples and a couple of them to, to make it real for folks that I've, I've shared, um, you know, from earlier in our pandemic is there was, there were times where uh, some businesses that were doing certain things that they were allowed to be open, but they weren't, they weren't supporting the physical distancing at all and they didn't care. And it was our ability to say, well, you know what, you need to care. And here's, here's a reminder of why you need to care. The other thing was house parties and stuff like that, where it was a, this is beyond the pale, uh, having 35, 40 people over for a house party when we were in those early stages, Bill, of, of saying to folks, stay home with your immediate family only. Uh, those were times where we intervened. But if you look at how many uh, tickets we've issued, very few compared to how many days we've been in this pandemic. And that's because, A, we're doing the education first and all the rest. And, B, we just can't physically be everywhere. We are not hiring uh, tens or hundreds of new bylaw officers to have roving bands of, of masked bylaw people. And this will be done in the context of all of our other bylaw work. And we're hoping that this, though, sends a message clearly to the community. Masks are an important piece if you can wear them and are able to wear them. Uh, and it's another layer of protection on top of the other things that work really well, too. Paul Johnson, the uh, Director of Emergency uh, Services for the city as we continue uh, in the battle against COVID. Paul, stay safe, stay healthy. We'll talk again soon. Appreciate this today. Same to you, Bill. Take care. Take care. Uh, the province has weighed in on this. We've talked about some of the federal uh, regulations that have come into place about COVID. And by the way, uh, the uh, financial update that uh, Bill Morneau is going to give is coming up later on today. We're going to get some feedback on that in just a couple of minutes on the program. But uh, the Doug Ford government has weighed in on this now, too, and suggesting that uh, they want to continue 
the emergency powers program that they have initiated here in the province uh, over the last number of months, which I, I guess should serve as an indicator that uh, COVID is not going away anytime soon and the provincial government is going to continue uh, to place some restrictions and some rules and regulations about what we are allowed to do or not allowed to do. Uh, Richard Brandon, retired journalist with the Toronto Star for many years who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Badger, thanks so much for the time. Glad you could be with us today. You staying well? I am, Bill. Uh, are you surprised by the Ford government announcement about this? Well, yeah, I am. I... I don't believe in giving governments blank checks. You know, this is a, you know, I, despite what the uh, premier said, this is a, you know, this is a power grab. He, he wants to have these emergency powers put in, you know, right into, you know, possibly into, you know, 2022. I, I don't get it. Uh, I know, you know, it's a pandemic and, you know, and that could stretch out for some time. But do it, do it in, in six-month segments or something like that. But to give your to give a government you know just a blank check for that long uh, just doesn't seem right to me or and I think a lot of other people. But you see, it, it and it runs totally contrary to what they've already done in this. You know, when he when he empowered this back in March, uh, he set timelines, didn't he? Yeah. He said this is going to be till June or this is going to be till what or you know and. Uh, and and the, the course, yes, of course, he added extensions to it. But we knew that it was finite. Right now, he's basically saying, "Well, I'll get back to you," and I think it's going to get better. We don't know when that's going to be. Well, everybody understood, you know, when he had to, you know, extend it, you know, and we all understood that things weren't, you know, clearing up as quickly as we'd hoped, and things weren't getting better as quickly as we hoped. But the point is that I, I I've been around too long to to think that. You know, uh, this is just, uh, you know, this is just, uh, you know, an innocent venture here. You'd, government should never be given these kind of powers, regardless of what the circumstances. Maybe uh, maybe in the case of war, but I'll tell you, this is a pandemic that, you know, could get better after a while. It may not, it may not right away, but the point is, you know, do it in six months, tranches, if you will. You know, we're going to do this, we're going to do this for the next six months, and then we're going to take a look at it then to see if we need to, you know, to have these kind of, uh, uh, have this kind of authority. But to give this government, I mean, remember, this is a majority government, and, and this is, this is a, uh, you know, this is a, bill, is a bill that's being put forward by the, uh, uh, a minister right now, and the, th- the thing is, it's just a, it's a it's just going to be a rubber stamp. They're they're going to maybe they're going to talk about it, debate it for a short time, and then it's going to and then it's going to happen. Well, you know that's not the kind of democracy I'd like to see, quite frankly. What's the justification for even considering doing something like this? And 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 uh, you know we are not cavalierly saying, hey, well, COVID's over. What's the big deal here? We understand that this is ongoing. Uh, and and there has to be something done here. But do you really have to have uh, the heavy hand of government saying, okay, we're coming down and we're, this is the way it has to be? The the reason why the numbers seem to be getting a little better over the last little while, not just province-wide, but even here in our, our area, here in southern Ontario, is because we're complying. So why do we need the government to lord over us on this now? Well, that's a question. You know, everybody's doing their part, or I should say most people are doing their part, to, you know, wearing masks, you know, social distancing, you know, you know, maybe having a couple people over to their house, but that's it, and usually just family. Everybody, everybody is trying to do what they can and doing their bit. But to have the government, you know, lord it over you that, you know, you, you know, I've got this power, and, and I'm going to tell you how you behave or conduct yourself. That's fine in an emergency, but th- this emergency at some point won't become an emergency anymore. And I hate to think that governments, Bill, don't like to give up power. Once they've got it, they, they just don't want to give it up. And that's where my concern is, is that somehow that this is going to be you know, some kind of permanent uh, position that the government's taken taking right through to the next election. Although he said, he says it's not. He said, you know, the premier said, well, you know, I, you know I, we're not, that's not going to happen. He says, I don't want a, a power grab. I, I'm not, I'm not, that, I'm not in a big government. I'm just not. Well, 
that's what he's told us all along, that he's not for big government. But I'll tell you, if, if this kind of two-year extension, if you want to put it that way, or even a year extension on emergency powers, if that isn't big government, I don't know what is. But, uh, and again, I, I'm, I'm watching the way that he's handling this, and, and you and I have talked about this in the past, and you know, the, he deserves some credit for taking this seriously. I'm not so sure that he did it initially. Uh, and, and, you know, he was probably the architect of some of these own problems, you know, with the long-term care facilities and some of the budget cutbacks he made on that last year. But they've pivoted on that, and that's what we needed to have happen with that government. I get that. But I'm, I'm looking at for the justification as to why they have to continue to do these sorts of things when municipalities and businesses themselves, I mean, when's the last time you went to a gym? And I know you love to do that almost every day, but, you know, they're saying, no, it's not safe yet. We don't need the government to tell us that. We know that already. So why, why then is there some sort of a rationalization, or is there any rationalization, for saying, well, we want to continue to do this? This is, this is like invoking the War Measures Act and just simply say that's going to be the new normal. It doesn't need to be anymore, I don't think. Well, it will for a while, Bill. And, and, and that's where I will, you know, uh, side with the government. You know, if if they think that, you know, according to the information they're getting to the health officials they're talking to, if it looks like this is, you know, going to be a problem for for another in another six months, well, that's fine. You know, give yourself the power to, you know, invoke that power if you have to for an, another six months. But giving yourself these, you know, this, I'll say, uh, open-ended emergency powers and i don't understand you know i i, I just I, you know i've read what i can about this and and listened to it on tv and that but i i still don't get what they think they need it for because well <laughs> somebody pointed out bill you know they won't give governments don't like to give up emergency powers they don't like to give up powers at all powers if that's what government's all about they hold power closely to their best and this is just not another power grab, as far as I'm concerned. Richard Brennan, uh, he, well, walked the halls of Queen's Park for many, many years and has seen all kinds of governments like this. This is, a, this is not a normal situation. We get that. But you just got to wonder what, what the, the justification is for something like this. Uh, lots more to come on this one in the uh, days and weeks ahead, I guess, as they try to move this on. Uh, Badger, thanks as always for the time. Stay healthy. We'll talk again yeah, soon. Yeah, you too, Bye-bye now. Take care. Richard Brennan, of course, uh, retired journalist who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Back to work for an awful lot of people as uh, COVID continues but many jurisdictions, including here in the southern Ontario area, are reopening and uh, giving more opportunities for businesses to reopen. But there are some restrictions, and there's always some concern, if you've been off work for the last little while, uh, about what your rights are. Uh, What can governments do? What can employers do in situations like this? There's a lot of questions, and we're going to try to answer some of those as we have for the last number of weeks. After a three-week hiatus, actually, uh, we want to bring our good friend Andrew Goldberg back. Andrew's an employment lawyer and associate at Sanfiro Tumarkin, LLP. Uh, employmentlawyer.ca, by the way, is the uh, the webpage that you want to go to if you want to get some questions answered about some of these things. Or you can listen to us right now, because we're going to try to do this, too. Andrew, welcome back to the program. Uh, great to have you back with us today. Thanks, Bill. It's a pleasure to be back, and I uh, hope all is well. Yeah, yeah, we got uh, all the business that had to be done is done, and uh, I'm on the mend, and we're working back on this here and uh, trying to get ourselves organized about this. And i got to tell you, uh, uh, even while I was off, I was getting questions and emails from a number of listeners who will listen to our segment that you and I do uh, on once a week here about what's going on. Uh, a lot of people really are, are, are scratching their heads and not really sure exactly what to do. Should I go to work? What can the boss tell me? Uh, there's a lot of things going on here, and I want to run a few things past you right now and maybe get some uh, perspective on Absolutely. some of the questions that I've heard. Um, one of them, of course, and, and I'm going to use the example of the, the story that we heard on the news just a couple of days ago. It was a hospital circumstance, but I've seen this happen and heard of this happening in other businesses as well. Uh, where some businesses are actually saying, uh, we were just talking about whether masks are going to be mandatory, and I know that's something in Toronto and Hamilton and Burlington that's being discussed by the city councils in in these municipalities. But if you do pass that, and if a business, whether it's a restaurant or a bar or something else, or even could be a department store, a grocery store, whatever the case might be, uh, they sometimes have imposed uh, mandatory masks. What happens in a situation like that? Is it up to the employee? If I work in that store, is it up to me as an employee to to 
to tell somebody you can't shop here? I mean, what what are the restrictions? What are the responsibilities here? Uh, and what about customers, uh, uh, potential customers anyway, who will fail or refuse to comply in a situation like that? What do you do? Well, uh, great question. Employers are struggling with that in Toronto. Now we've already implemented the requirement to mm-hmm. have customers wear masks in the workplace. And it, it's difficult to enforce because, you know, what are the lengths that an employer has to go through to enforce these things? Um, right now there's a penalty that can be imposed on people not wearing masks. I think it's about $1,000 right now in Toronto. But, you know, the best thing an employer can do if you own a business, you know, have a clear process for what the protocol is if someone comes in without a mask. You know, let them know that, you know, this is the policy. Expect them to wear a mask. Um, A great thing to do for any company is to have masks readily available. Mm. Um, You know, they're they're getting cheaper and cheaper. They're very abundant these days. And and have them available for people just so they're there. And really, there's no reason for... um, a customer to refuse. There are tricky situations, though. I mean, if someone comes in and they say, listen, I have a medical issue, I can't wear a mask, you know, what do you do as an employee if you work at the store? You know, what are your rights? Uh, how, what lengths do you need to go through? Are you expected to grab the person by the shirt and throw them out of the store? I mean, absolutely not, right? Um, there's a lot of balancing to be done here. You know, you have to work look out for your own safety as an employee in a store. And, uh, at the same time, try to enforce the policy. So really the best things you can do is remind the customer, listen, you know, we have this policy in place. We need you to wear a mask. If they say that they have some certain disability or underlying medical issue where they can't wear the mask, then you might have to accommodate that um, and try, you know, some alternate measures to serve them if, if possible. If there's plexiglass in the store, you can serve them, you know, outside and bring them their product to them. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, tell them, you know, you expect them to wear the mask, you expect them to comply with the bylaws that's in Toronto now and, and maybe soon in Hamilton. And um, if they don't, you know, take information of this person, you know, maybe, you know, you can take video, you have video surveillance in the store, video footage, or if you get their license plate or something. And if they don't comply, you can call the police and have the police come in and do what they need to do. But definitely, if you're an employee, don't put yourself in harm's way uh, over the bylaw. Um, that's not going to be expected of you at all. What about from the employee standpoint, though, Andrew? Uh, you just used the example, and there are people, I, I know of people that do have medical conditions, could be asthmatic, could be any number of different things, uh, that said, I just can't wear a mask because it's actually going to impede my breathing in a situation like that. And they, they're fully cognizant of, of the, the concerns, you know, on the safety, et cetera, but they said, I just can't do this. If if, the, if that's me, you know, I'm and my boss comes back and says, well, I can't let you work then. If, if you can't wear a mask, I can't have you in this environment because you're putting other people at risk. Can they, can they actually do that, prohibit you from working because you're in a circumstance like that? I mean, that's going to be situational. So the employer, if you do have a genuine disability as an employee and you can't wear the mask, then the employer has to canvas, you know, are there other ways to accommodate you? without just sending you home without work, right? So the first and obvious solution would be, can you do your job from home, okay? And if you can do your job from home, that's a great solution and it solves all the problems. Uh, the second one would be, you know, could could things work out if you um, socially, if you put this person in a socially distant setting, if you make sure that they're six feet away from everyone, there's also those face guards out that aren't... Yeah. Uh, exactly the same as the mask they don't cover your face and nose to the great to the same degree there's a bit of breathing room um again you you know that person would have to talk to their doctor and see if that's something that they're uh, capable of doing but perhaps that that could be a solution the employer certainly has to canvas alternate um accommodation methods they they can't just send you home willy-nilly they have to see if there's something they can do that you know keeps the workplace safe but also allows you to not wear the mask if you're medically unable to do so. All right, forget about the medical stuff for just a second. What if I just say to my my employer, I I don't I think it's a dumb idea. Uh, I, I I agree with Donald Trump. I don't think we should be wearing masks. I'm I'm going to come to work tomorrow, boss, but I'm not going to wear a mask. What's what's the status there? Can can you get fired for that? Can they say, well, don't bother coming in? What's the the, the protocol there? You, you know what in. The, you know, we've talked about this many times. I know it's been three weeks now, but, uh, you know, this is the point we hit on for weeks, uh, you know, uh, back then. But 
the employer has an obligation to ensure a safe workplace for its employees. The government has made it clear that masks are something that they expect uh, to be worn, that they think that that curbs the potential exposure to COVID and mitigates risks associated with COVID. So the employer has an obligation to ensure a safe workplace. If you, as an employee, just refuse to wear the mask and your reason is just, well, I'm free to do whatever I want, I don't want to wear a mask, then absolutely your employer can send you home, your employer can discipline you. And if you continue to refuse and and don't show up for, to work and uh, or, or attempt to show up to work and not wear a mask, you, you could potentially be fired for cause and not get a severance package. So, um, you know, an employer has an obligation to ensure a safe workplace that's within their realm to do. I mean, think about it this way. You know, can you show up to work butt naked? You know what I mean? Like, is if, you know, I always think about this as a comparable argument. Like, people like, well, you know, there are kind of avenues an employer can go through and say, well, we expect A, B, and C. I mean, it's a, you know, people that say it's a free country. Why do I need to wear clothes or why do I need to do A or why do I need to do B? But it's because, you know, you're an employee working for an employer. Employer has the right to set certain guidelines and expectations. And if one of them is to wear a mask to ensure safety, uh, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And we're kind of getting into the realm of, of, I guess, some of the most elementary things about dismissal, aren't we, from the workplace? Uh, I mean, I can get fired because they don't like the color of the shirts that I wear every day, but as long as I'm compensated properly, they can do that. I mean, so, again, now that we're into this idea, well, I don't want to wear a mask, well, you know what, this is my store, these are my rules, and if you don't want to comply with the rules, you're not going to work here. They they are well within the rights to do that. Absolutely. I mean, but to take it a step further, I mean, if this person refuses to wear a mask and they don't have a valid reason to do so, and they continue to refuse and they continue to show up to work and not wear a mask, it's possible that that could amount to a for-cause dismissal, like for, for valid reason, such that that person would no longer even be entitled to their severance. So is, is that a hill that these people want to die on, which is uh, to not wear a mask? <clears throat> you know, when I look at these videos online in the States or Canada and about people, you know, trying to say, oh, because of freedom, I don't have to wear a mask. <clears throat> it just seems like a lot of people are doing this for shock value. I mean, it, a lot of, you know, even as, as an employee, if you if you don't see the merit in wearing a mask, you think it's all a conspiracy by the mask making companies to sell masks. I don't know what, what the gist is, but, um, you know, you still have employees all around you, coworkers all around you that would feel much more comfortable if you were wearing the mask and your employer would feel more comfortable and the customers would feel more comfortable and the government has made it clear that this is an expectation. So if you continue to refuse, uh, it's it's very possible that you can be fired for cause and not get a severance at all. So that's something people have to think about. Absolutely. You mentioned something the last time we we had you on the program about three weeks ago, I guess it was now, uh, about, uh, I, I know an Ontario law was passed, it was uh, some, some changes that were being made to employment standards and employment laws, and I've received a number of requests the week after that, asking, look, can you get Andrew to clarify this, because I've, I've, I personally know two or three different people now uh, that have said, look, my employer has asked me to renegotiate, or we may not even negotiate, but to renew the terms of, of their employment, because uh, it's a different world with COVID now, and they're not, they're, they're, they're pretty unsure of themselves but should we do this i mean can they do that like we agreed to this sort of a deal this is how i work this is the my compensation etc some employers are coming back and saying yeah well that was then this is now are, are they all, all allowed to do something like that so <clears throat> absolutely not an employer cannot change the terms of your employment without your consent okay the complicating factor is there's a new regulation that like you brought up which does allow an employer to cut wages or cut hours without it um, being considered a breach of the Employment Standards Act. Now, I'm not going to get too too far into it because it is a very uh, kind of legally centric argument, but and it could take you know hours to discuss really. But that doesn't necessarily preclude someone from pursuing a claim for constructive dismissal if the employer just does change the terms of their employment, if they cut their wages, if they cut their hours. They can still pursue a claim for constructive dismissal and pursue their severance. But that being said, with this new regulation, um, even if the employer believes they're correct and that they can cut wages or they can cut hours, they must reinstate that person to their previous earnings or their previous hours 
by no later than six weeks after the end of the emergency order. So if someone doesn't want to pursue a constructive dismissal claim, if the employer says, listen, we're cutting your pay by 20% and you don't want to pursue a constructive dismissal claim and you'd rather wait it out, then your employer must reinstate your pay back to the 100% um, six weeks after the end of the emergency order. Now, the emergency order keeps getting extended. Right now, it's been extended again until July 24th. Therefore, six weeks after would be September 8th. So your employer must revert your hours or your wages back to what they were before um, by that date, September 8th. Now, that could change if the emergency order date changes. And if you don't want to wait that long, by all means, you can contact our firm, you can contact an employment lawyer, and you can pursue a constructive dismissal claim and try to get your severance now. Um, So those are the options for people. It is a bit of a complicated situation, but that kind of is the high-level summary of it. And, and that's an ex, you know, that's a provision, I guess, that's there for the protection of the employee to say, look at, you know, this is the drop dead date. You've got a, you know, fisher cut bait in situations like this. But yesterday, the premier announced that he was going to extend these emergency measures in the province, uh, and they don't know how long. He just said, you know, for the, for, you know, he's, there's no end date on this. Does does that impede that situation right now, where the employer can say, look at, I don't have to give you uh, six weeks or eight weeks now. I can do. Uh, I'm going to wait until the premier decides that he's going to rescind that order. Yeah, so, and that's always been a concern from the get-go, is that they could just keep extending this thing onward and onward. I I think the changes that they were discussing is uh, a new legislation. It might not necessarily touch on this six-week countdown. I hope Uh, not. I I hope not, too. You know, again, otherwise, every time something like this happens, you know, the natural kind of ripple effect of this is that we must continue the CERB benefit. You can't keep continuing and extending the leave of absence if you don't continue the CERB benefit. It has to go hand in hand. How are you going to tell people that, oh, you know, you can be laid off, you can lose your your job, you can lose um, part of your pay, uh, or you can lose all of your pay, but, you know, you're on your own. So the longer this thing goes, the more money that, you know, the government's going to have to spend on the CERB benefit, which is you know, as you talked about, a number with lots of zeros. I, I remember using that term earlier on in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's going to be expensive. And I think, uh, you know, right now things are bouncing back. It, it, they seem, you know, downtown Toronto, it's, it's very lively. Things are kicking up. Let's hope the numbers stay down in Ontario. They've been good so far. But it, it is scary for people because when they call me and they say, hey, if I don't pursue a constructive dismissal claim, I'm on a layoff now. When will I be back? I tell them, okay, six weeks after the end of the emergency order. At one point it was, you know, June 30th, and then it was July 10th, and now it's July 24th. And as the weeks go on, it gets pushed a week, and they keep calling me back, and they say, I don't think I can wait that long. I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to, you know, I can't pay my bills. Um, this is a scary time. So what it does more than anything is it entices people to pursue constructive dismissal claims where they otherwise wouldn't because they'd probably just wait and see if they got their job back in September, right, where it is now. Well, if you find yourself in a circumstance like that, uh, getting some advice from an employment lawyer like Andrew is, is the, the path that you want to follow on this. Employmentlawyer.ca is the uh, the webpage you want to go to, or you can just get a hold of Andrew and uh, uh, his uh, compatriots, of course, uh, at uh, Stamp Fewer to Market LLP. Uh, i got a lot more to talk about. We're out of time this time, so let's do this again next week, Andrew. Good to have you back on the show today. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be back. I figured after all the time I've been on, maybe be able to just do this by yourself at this point. That's all the conversations <laughs> we've had. You'll be you'll be the next employment lawyer after your, yeah, well, your radio career. I'm 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 married to a lawyer. I and I play one on TV, on radio on TV. That's about as far as it goes. We'll talk again next week. Thanks again, Andrew. All right, thanks for Andrew Goldberg, me. employment lawyer. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on nine hundred CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine till noon on nine hundred CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.